Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show seeks out conversations with business owners and private investors to learn how to acquire and run companies with a special focus on micro-private equity and permanent capital. You can learn more at thinklikeowners.com. This space has some of the most unique backgrounds, and my guest on this episode is no exception. David Kroc joined the band as their drummer coming out of high school, did not go to college, and wound up starting a recording studio, which led him on a path to entrepreneurship and micro-PE investing, which he does today through his firm, Sunset Coast Capital. David is your quintessential outside-the-classroom learner and has a rare depth of thought and experience. The topics of our conversation include his early years, switching from music to entrepreneurship, the advantages of seasonal and cyclical businesses, lessons learned along the way, and a way he's trying to emulate Amazon. You can follow David Kroc on Twitter and through his sites davidkroc.com and sunsetcoastcapital.com. Please enjoy our conversation. Well, I'd like to begin by discussing your music background, and then we could go into sort of how you became an entrepreneur and uh, now an investor. I find that the more I learn about the micro PE and permanent capital space, the more variable the backgrounds get. You know, your background is obviously very unique and there's no one set of backgrounds that fits everybody. So I'm looking forward to hearing about yours. Yeah. So my first career basically was in the music business. Um, I was a, in, in high school, I started playing drums and, uh, my junior year of high school, uh, a few other guys approached me about joining their band. And so we, we started, started a band, uh, started playing out, uh, started recording. It was going pretty well. So when I got to my graduation uh, in, in 1997, when I graduated from high school, I basically just said, you know, I'm going to keep doing this. I don't, I don't really have a desire to go to college. Um, you know, my parents were not, didn't push us one way or, or the other uh, when it came to that. So I thought, I'm going to keep going. So, um, you know, I, I basically just kept uh, doing the music thing, playing gigs, doing some some small tours, kind of local, regional Midwest stuff. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm in the Midwest. I'm actually in Michigan right now. So I'm, a, I'm along the shores of Lake Michigan in the beautiful beach towns of what we call the Sunset Coast. And I grew up in Chicago, which is basically straight across the lake. So, um, you know, some small, small things in the Midwest. But uh, for me, the the part I loved most about being a musician was spending time in a recording studio and putting together an album, basically taking all of the, the ingredients to, to go from scratch to a finished product that people would enjoy. Side note, the, the number of entrepreneurs that I've met uh, now who are also musicians is actually quite surprising. Um, it's, and I think partially because the process between creation in art or in music and just creative endeavors in general, and creating a new company or a new product. Uh, it, it's basically starting from nothing and creating something, right, out of nothing. I think there, that there, maybe there's a common uh, mindset or something that people are drawn to. So for me, just as music developed, I mentioned I found the passion kind of in creation of the finished product from scratch. That was the best part. And it was, for me anyway, I, I fell in love with sort of the, the production side. So I, was, I would be in the role where I'd be working with all of these different personalities, all of these different people to actually get a finished product. So I'd have the, the musicians that were like myself that were, you know, like down with the system kind of, kind of people, right? Like they, they didn't want to be in the suits. You know, they didn't have, want to have anything to do with the system, quote unquote, but they were, they were the artists, right? They wanted to create, 
create music and they wanted to be able to eat, right? So you need to be able to survive if you're a, a musician. So had the, that group of people, had the people that were more the engineers or the technical people who you know were doing recording and kind of doing the post-production and editing and things like that. You had more of the business types that were from either record labels or management or things like that, who, who those were the suits, right, so to speak, in quotes. And so you had all of these different personalities and people that had different interests and different ways of looking at the world. And you basically, from this role as a producer, you had to take all of those personalities and end up with a product, end up with something that everybody loved and could would be commercially successful or could be commercially successful. And so uh, for me, that was fascinating. I loved that creative endeavor. In some way, I don't know if it was just my desire to be liked by people, but I, I somehow I got along with all those different personalities. And so for me, as I as I did more of that kind of thing, I, I got what... So Michael Gerber, the author of The E-Myth uh, Revisited, he, he likes to say that that the, the myth of the entrepreneur is that it isn't people that like go in with this sort of bracing against the elements, seasoned business people that that start businesses. It's people that that do something that they really enjoy or are in an industry and they get what he calls an entrepreneurial seizure. <laughs> and they basically say, I'm gonna start, you know, let's, let's say I'm a plumber, right? I'm going to start a plumbing company because I know how to plumb really, really well, and I can do it better than this guy that's my boss. And so I'm going to, I'm going to branch out and do that. Well, I, I got the entrepreneurial seizure uh, to start my own recording studio. And so that was my first sort of foray into having a business or doing something on my own. And I thought it would be easy. I thought I would just keep doing what I was doing, but now I get to keep all of the money, right? Not knowing how much money there was or, or whatever. And so the process of doing that, now I had to, you know, we, we basically, I, I took literally everything I had. I took all of the, the money that I'd built up. I'm probably 19 years old at this time. All the whatever life savings I had, you know, and, and sold things and basically poured everything into the studio. And then we opened the doors and I'm sitting there at the desk or at the console and I'm like, now what? Now what do I do? What like? It, aren't the people just supposed to be lined up outside, ready to walk in and and just start recording and paying us lots of money, right? Like that's how it's supposed to work. But of course, that's not how it works. You actually have to do all of these other things that come with business, like marketing or you know finance or you know all of the other pieces that come with it. And I knew none of that stuff. You know, people that are familiar with a startup, uh, the there's a there's a key metric that startups use called burn rate which is basically how long can you survive on the cash that you have? Now we didn't have any, uh, we didn't have any seed investment or anything like that other than our own, uh, our own stuff. And so I was not able to survive very long in a, in a business that was making no money that I had to kind of feed every month. And so I eventually kind of got out of that and was left with some debts and, and kind of was in a position where I had, I had skipped the college route. I had skipped, uh, building sort of a resume, you know, and, and working my way up in an industry. I had, you know, basically had no money. And, and now I was in a position where I was actually in debt as I was doing this. And so I had kind of like a now what moment, right? And so one thing leads to another, and that's that's kind of part of my story. But I ended up kind of sliding over into the business side of things and the entrepreneurial side of things, uh, in part because of the experiences that I had in, in the music industry. And it is a very, very similar sort of thing. But I think what's missing in the music industry is that that business knowledge that I didn't have either uh, for a lot of artists. 
Yeah. Did you see that as you began your business career that you had certain advantages due to your music background and also not having your college background that helped you along as you became you know, more of the business side of things? I think in, in hindsight, uh, I like the journey that I took. Um, but I, I don't know if, uh, yeah, there's pros and cons, I think, because I think you can, you can learn how it's supposed to be done in school and you can learn how, um, you can learn how it's supposed to be done from, from books and other ways to, to learn, uh, or to kind of ramp up your skill set or, you know, your knowledge base around a subject. But, um, you know, as Mike Tyson, I think said, the minute you get punched in the mouth, your game plan goes out the window. And now you have to actually figure out how to operate in space and take the resources you have and the situational stuff and the people you're working with and 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 be able to to create from that point. And so I, I think the it, had I not learned that side of it, had I not learned how to operate in space with limited resources and and had to try and figure out how to how to make something successful, um, I, I think it would have taken me a little bit longer to get where I am now. But the other side of it, the con side of it is, had I had that foundation and had I approached things with a certain strategic um, rigor, maybe in terms of the the early years, I probably would have built a, a bigger foundation or have gotten further quicker in in one line of work. But I, I actually really enjoy the the varied sorts of things that that I'm doing in in the uh, I guess what I call the the uh, ecosystem of businesses that I have. What sorts of lessons did you have to learn by by failing in those early years? In many ways, there's there are so many lessons I had to learn, and there's so many ways in which I've I've failed uh, again and again in all of the probably all of the areas of business. Um, but I think the biggest one was probably centered around the people stuff, around managing people, around working with a group of people to get something done. I think in many ways, I, I liked the idea of living in the spreadsheets and ba- basically coming up with the game plan of what was supposed to happen and how it was all supposed to play out. And But in reality, you actually have to work with what you're given in the team that you have. Um, you know, I've, I've heard in some previous episodes on your show when people talk about you know, they buy a business and they have this this master plan that they go in with about how they're going to grow the thing. And then they realize, oh my gosh, we don't have we don't have reliable Wi-Fi in here, much less, you know, much less going to transform the industry. And so I, I think that kind of, those sort of lessons were, were definitely prevalent for me. Um, so, and I, I think the other thing that I, I missed out on, and I, I didn't learn this until more recently, I would say, is just the, the willingness to ask for help, the willingness to appear as if you don't know what you're doing or, or to, in, in many ways, just be real about where you are in a given situation. And, and you know, I think when you're, when you're young and inexperienced and are trying to, trying to basically level up and play on a bigger playing field, you don't actually have those things. It's, you tend to hide sometimes behind a facade. And now I'm like, oh, my God, I, I, I could have gotten so much farther had I just been more open and transparent about what I needed and just asked the question, you know, the, just asking the question sometimes in so many areas of, of life and in business, I think is a, uh, a superpower. What were some of the businesses you initially started? So the, the first business I had, uh, kind of coming off of, so if we, if we come off the, the recording studio, uh, debacle, so to speak, I, I spent a lot of time. So when I was it actually kind of life devolved a little bit for me at that point. And I, I became a little bit more, I wouldn't say depressed, but 
you know, my emotional state wasn't great. And one of the things that I had to lean on, or one of the things I did lean on was growing up, uh, one of the, we didn't have a lot, but one of the things that we did for entertainment was to go to the library and check out just books after books, right? So I actually essentially at this point lived in the library, uh, eating out of the vending machine there and just hanging out and reading everything I could. And what happened was, um, you know, I read books on personal finance and getting out of debt because that was kind of where I was starting from. And that led to subjects like uh, investing, like entrepreneurship, like things along those lines. And what I, what started to happen was I started to see in this way of doing work an opportunity for me to sort of take who I was as a person and the things that I really enjoyed and the creative aspects of what I like to do and now actually play that out in in sort of your vocation where I thought I thought work was basically this thing you did that you hated until you got to a certain point where you could stop doing that thing <laughs> and then your real life could start and I, for me I I fell in love with the creative prospects of building a business and so what I started to do was I would just meet up with people that had similar interests and one thing led to another. I, I was actually sitting at a red light at one point in time. And I had an opportunity that night to go to uh, a meetup of people that were really fired up about uh, entrepreneurship and investing and, and bettering their lives. And I'm sitting at this light and I, I basically, I've been my own worst enemy in my, especially in my younger years in terms of uh, shooting myself in the foot when I had an opportunity. And I had an opportunity this this particular evening to meet up with some some really dynamic, interesting people. Um, I did not spend time around these kinds of people at this point in my life, and I had a chance to to level up, so to speak, the people that were around me. And uh, as was true to my nature at that point in time, I started to tell myself a story about why me going to this restaurant and meeting up with these people probably wasn't a good idea and that I probably didn't have much to offer them and, you know, what are you doing here and that kind of thing. And I actually talked myself out of going uh, to, to, this, to the restaurant. And so I'm sitting at, I don't know where I was going to go that night, but I'm sitting at a red light. And uh, the light is red for a really long period of time, so I've got some, some time to think. And it also happened to be situated just underneath a highway uh, overpass that went over the top of this intersection uh, that happened to be the highway I would have needed to have been on to go to the restaurant to meet up with these people. And so in hindsight, I look back at that moment and I'm like, I was literally at a crossroads in my life. I had the opportunity when the light went green to continue on the same path I'd always been on, which was continually uh, creating a worse and worse sort of situation for me. Or I could make a U-turn and I could go back to the on-ramp and get on this highway to a different place. And so as I sat there at that light and just just struggled with what is it that I'm going to do here? How am I going to, you know, what am I going to do with my life? How am I going to make things better? Uh, you know, again, struggling with the idea of going to meet these people. Something changed in that moment. And for the first time in my life, I actually overcame uh, sort of some of the doubts that I had about myself. And so I light goes green. I pull a U-turn, get on the highway, go to the restaurant. And one other guy showed up of the whole group of people that was going to get together, one other person showed up and we had an amazing conversation. This guy was 13, 15 years older than me. He had started some businesses. He had a lawn and landscape business. He had done some real estate investing. He was just a really interesting dude. 
And one of the best parts about the whole situation was he treated me as an equal because we thought about the same sorts of things and we were passionate about the same sorts of things and, and about changing lives and those sorts of things. And so I left that that meeting thinking, oh, this is so cool. I need to spend more time around people like this. And so of the group of people that were going to get together that night, everybody had an excuse while they weren't there. And we decided to do it again. So the next month we decided to get together and there were 15 people that wanted to come. And so we got together at the same restaurant and, and sort of had this, where do you want to be in a year kind of conversation? Or what are your goals? What do you want to get out of life? And it turned out to be just a really eclectic, dynamic group of people. Uh, not, not all that dissimilar to the groups of people that I, I dealt with in the music industry trying to pull an album off. You had people that were investors. You had people that were creatives. You had people that were entrepreneurs. You had people that were doing their own home-based businesses. And the, the excitement in that room was so great that we decided we were just going to get together every month to just to share stories, to support each other, and to grow. And so, and I'm getting to your question about my, my actual business that I transitioned to. This group grew every month. The next month, we had 35 people that wanted to come. And eventually, it grew to have more than 500 members. And we had to organize monthly meetings where you got about a, you know 20% of those members that would show up every month into this really dynamic association of like-minded people that were there to help each other. And so out of that group, what I, what I was doing during the day, uh, because I hadn't really done anything yet other than meet up with these people and spent time at the library learning, was I was just filling my head with what does it take to move to the next level? What does it take to grow a business? What does it take to become the sort of person I want to become? And it, it was just this fertile soil could, because every month I would get together with these people who were at various stages of their advancement in the things that they wanted to do. And, and I became, I was treated as a peer and because I was reading so much, I became known as the kid that had probably read something that had to do with a challenge you were facing right now. And so people would just have conversations with me and I would just start spitting out random bits of knowledge or whatever that I'd collected over the course of the week or the month. And I was helping people just, just because of, I was interested in sharing what I'd learned and it was, and, and people have limited amounts of time. And so I had a lot more time to read and learn. And so from that, uh, eventually uh, a gentleman approached me and said, Hey, I've got this business. I've been able to grow it to about $600,000 in sales. And I, and it just has plateaued. I can't get it to grow anymore. I don't know what I'm doing wrong. Every time that we've had a good conversation, you've offered some advice or you've had some tips or whatever. So will, are you interested in coming to help me with my business? Are you willing to like, I don't know, consult for me or something along those lines? And I said, yes. Uh, can we go right now? Like, let's just get started. And uh, his next question to me was, well, how much do you charge for this? And I had this moment where as a kid that had basically worked odd jobs and done some, you know, some gigs, you know, hand to mouth kinds of uh, uh, work situations. I was like, I, I can charge for this. And so I, I looked, I went home, looked up, you know, on, online, what, what is, what exactly am I doing? What would that be? How much could I charge? And, and I realized for the first time that I was actually just as a starting kind of business consultant with the, the base knowledge that I had, I was able to effectively 10 X the amount that I had ever earned per hour, uh, just by having learned and grown and improved the value that I could provide to other people, which blew my mind. And so we went to work on his business, and in a year, we were able to 
uh, raised the level of sales from 600,000 to over a million. And it grew from there. And, and other people would ask me if I could help them with their business. And so I basically just started consulting and coaching uh, with entrepreneurs to, to basically take their business to the next level, utilizing some first principles and things that I had read. And we, we tested things out. And, and so I, my, my real first successful business was, was a consultancy. It was a coaching business. And from there, things just started to grow. And you know, the, the clients were happy. And um, I kind of got sick of watching everyone else's business grow while I was just offering advice. And I got sick of trading an hour for a dollar, you know, that whole sort of uh, arrangement. And I thought, well, I want to start doing some things for myself. And so I started doing some, some smaller projects, meeting up with people and, and creating small businesses uh, in the service space, a little bit of small-time real estate investing, things along that, those lines. And eventually, a gentleman came to me and said, hey, you know, one of my former clients, and said, you did great work with us. I see that you're doing some real estate investing now. Um, myself and I are looking at a, a, a large retirement community a couple of states away, and we think you would make a great partner. Are you interested in trading some, some time for equity and a little bit of cash and, and getting involved in this business? And I said, yeah, I'd love to take a look. And as we evaluated that opportunity, uh, it was a business plus the real estate. So you kind of had both of those components uh, coming with that purchase. And as we evaluated the opportunity, I could see that essentially business 101, basic principles, would have been able to transform the prospects for that business and, and really increase its value. And we were able to buy that business at a discount from where it was already. So what we did is we actually went to work prior to ever closing on the business. We took over management. We locked in our price. We took over management and did some improvements and then by the time we actually closed the property, it was worth well more than we were paying for it. And one thing led to another, and I ended up moving to that community two states away because I saw lots of opportunity to start or acquire other small businesses in that area. And of the companies that you tend to acquire now, what, are there any particular industries that you find most interesting? I know we talked about hospitality and seasonal wedding type businesses. Are there industries that you like in particular, or are you just looking for specific characteristics? One of the things I realized is I started to, once I had you know, three or four businesses, um, I realized that I sort of needed some parameters, uh, some criterion, if you will, uh, for getting involved in new things. And, and I, I came up with sort of three crude like pillars of the stool, so to speak. Um, the first one was that I, I was looking for businesses that were in some way, shape, or form complementary to something that I was either already doing or uh, it was like a tertiary kind of business. Um, so this is, I guess it speaks to the whole circle of competence, um, you know, phraseology that you hear, uh, you hear our, our, our good, good buddies, uh, Buffett and Munger talk about um, that, that to me is a big part of it. It's gotta be something that is either complementary to something I'm already doing or that the learning curve is quick. And so uh, the the other two the other two parameters that I started with were um, I already needed a really strong leader in place. Um, I was not going to be that leader for a new business that I acquired, so I'm not. Um, I never looked at things, you know, in that sort of search fund mentality that that people do, where where the intention is to buy a business that you will then run. Um, that that was never part of my um, acquisition strategy once I started acquiring businesses. But the third thing was I needed to be able to realize a fifty percent cash on cash return in the first year, which really narrowed the field when you talk about like opportunities that are available. Um, so 
obviously business that's performing successfully in a, in a complementary industry to what I was already doing and then had strong leadership already involved. And what that, what that meant was, so the first sort of foothold business in the community that I moved to was a retirement community. So large piece of real estate, very stable sorts of, um, not, that business was not going to grow by 20, 30% a year. If we grew 3%, that was a, that was a big, you know, that was a big growth for the year. Uh, but really predictable in terms of its, um, its cash flows and whatnot. And, and, and really diversified. It was a 130 unit building. So, you know, if we, a few people moved out here and there, we were able to kind of, uh, quickly replace that income. And so it became this platform from which I moved to the community and saw their opportunities. The first of which was this beautiful outdoor space we had attached to the property, um, that we ended up turning into an event venue, um, because it was, it was gorgeous. The, the, the building itself was a, uh, 1920s brick limestone, uh, tall Mediterranean column style property that was a hotel originally. Um, and it's perched on a bluff overlooking one of the great lakes. So it's just, just a beautiful property and now was being utilized for senior living and, and, you know, the VIPs at, at that point in time were now the, the seniors of the community. And this outdoor space was just gorgeous and it wasn't being used. So the game plan was let's figure out a way to make it, make it be a, a profitable uh, piece of the, of the puzzle. And so started that up as an event venue, eventually started a uh, sort of a management company to, to manage that space that was separate from the, the, the senior living community. And then recognized that there was another opportunity in, in the industry, uh, specifically in the wedding industry. Uh, that was something that I never would have predicted I would be in. And lo and behold, here I am uh, with a bunch of holdings in that industry. But And, and, and a, to me, is an industry that uh, has a ton of upside as well. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more specifically about the wedding industry or wedding business model, both in terms of your experience and upside, but also the sort of pros and cons of being a seasonal business? Yeah. So one of the things that I, that I love about, um, what I love about the wedding industry is that in many ways, this is something I've fallen into and this is just serendipitous, but a lot of the businesses that I have are centered around life events, like things that don't change. Every, every year in the United States, around 2.1 million people get married. That number varies some, you know, we have people waiting longer to get married or we have, you know, sometimes the the rate of marriage amongst people goes down from time to time. It ebbs and flows with, I don't know, generations, so to speak. But but pretty stable. Uh, you might have max five percent change in terms of that that amount of people, and the, and it renews every year, right? It, like you don't. This isn't a repeat customer business, although sometimes it is. But we don't experience that. <laughs> Hopefully not. Hope this, not. Yeah, fifty percent off for your next time around. But um, no, it's about the same number of people get married every year. And about the same number, you know, growing amounts of people are retiring and needing housing that that serves an aging population, and in a few other sort of life event type things, travel and things like that, uh, that have developed for me. But one of the I've when we launched that that event venue attached to the retirement community, the thing that we learned pretty quickly was ninety five percent of our clients were couples that were getting married and needed a beautiful place to host their wedding reception, and. We thought we'd be doing corporate events and nonprofit things and galas and banquets and things like that. Um, we even called it a banquet facility for a long time until I quickly realized that that phrase was outdated. 
Um, people don't look for banquet facilities anymore. They look for great, beautiful, unique spaces to do things with the people they care about. And so what I realized was, okay, now we have this specific clientele that is looking for a really unique space. Most of the time, at least in the area that we're centered around, uh, they were traveling. Uh, we, the area that I live in in Southwest Michigan is really nicely situated between uh uh, Chicago is 90 minutes away. I can be in downtown Chicago in less than 90 minutes. Um, Detroit is a couple of hours away in the other direction. Indianapolis is a few hours away to the southern direction. In a, in a really budding, growing city uh, of Grand Rapids, Michigan, is an hour and 15 minutes to the north. So, And, and we're on a major highway, actually. Um, I-90 stretches from Boston to Seattle. And I-90 is basically 20 minutes to the south of where I'm at. And so you have this sort of intersection of lots of different things happening, but from the standpoint, and we live in a beautiful area. Uh, basically, my office looks out on the beaches of, of Lake Michigan. So people want to come to this area to experience unique events. And for the, so we actually saw a major influx of people that were wanting to travel to host a, a destination wedding, so to speak, on the shores of Lake Michigan in some beautiful spaces. And so we realized quickly that most of our clients were from out of town. And in the, in the cycle, this is, this is one of the fascinating things about this industry, your, your clientele essentially uh, contracts you to provide service to them anywhere from, on average, 12 to 15 months in advance of when you will actually provide the service. And there's this gap, there's this giant gap in time between when they book you and when you're actually providing the service that is essentially a relationship. And so what we learned really early on is that, well, first of all, one of the first things people do when they get engaged is they start looking for places to host their, their reception and their wedding because until you actually nail down that place, you don't have a wedding date. And that is an important part of the whole wedding experience is the actual day, actually being able to have a day you get married. And so for us, we realized that we were one of the earliest things that people booked, which meant we were so so early on in the process of what somebody uh, was doing as they were planning for this special event that uh, we actually could be a resource to these people and that the relationship of 12 to 15 months was actually an opportunity for us to take them on a journey through all of these different things that they could participate in or, or provide recommendation for. And uh, it just became an amazing sort of experience. And so since then, um, we basically created a small, uh, small ecosystem in that space, in the event space. Um, you know, it started with one, one event venue, and then I built a service business off of that, which was in the event planning area. We added a rental company, rentals, lighting, decor, things like that. Um, I had an opportunity to buy a trolley, and so started a transportation company. Um, and we've just can kind of continued to add to that mix of services, of additional things we could provide to those clients that we have a long-term relationship with. Um, so just earlier this year, I bought a special event uh, floral company. Actually, we closed in, in January on that. And so now we're developing out sort of the event design side of things uh, with the floral side. So, But as you mentioned, uh, that industry is quite cyclical. And it's quite, I wouldn't say it's cyclical, that industry is quite seasonal. Because the, the prime months for having weddings are actually in typically in your summer months, right? So, and for us, we're a destination area, um, and a lot of my venues have an outdoor component to them. So, uh, May through October is kind of our our on season when we're doing most of our events, 
and uh, the rest of this, the rest of the time, we're actually spending focused on building the business. Um, to I guess to make another Michael Gerber Emeth reference, we we work in the business May through October, and we work on the business hopefully all the time, but but we get more time to focus on it uh, November through April. So you get this cyclicality or the seasonality in terms of how those things work. Um, but I I actually think there are some benefits to seasonality or cyclicality in business if you're structured properly. To me, the real issue with seasonality or, or cyclicality is how it affects cash, because typically you're you know you know you have expenses year round or you have peak times of expenses and peak times of cash flow, and it's basically bridging the gap between when you have cash and when you need cash. That is sort of the that's the that's the cycle or the struggle there. But if you can develop ways to improve your cash conversion cycle, um, how fast a dollar you invest in the business comes back to you with par- profit how fast you can get paid versus when you pay vendors. And what we figured out is we were able to, to design a system that actually utilized that 12 to 15 months to our advantage. Um, and so for us, we have, yes, we have an incredibly seasonal business, um, but from a cash flow standpoint, we typically have anywhere from 30 to 75% of, of the revenue uh, in advance of when we need to provide the service. Um, and, and not just a few days in advance, months and months and in some cases years. So um, very interesting. Uh, and if you can essentially, if you can keep that cycle rolling year after year, you've, you've pulled your profitability into, into previous years uh, or into uh, sooner timeframes. And so if you're very good at managing how you invest that money and what kind of return you get on that money and the, the turnover, the asset turnover rate uh, in that, in that area, you can actually do quite well and the other thing I've noticed about the industry is there are no real dominant names or brands in the wedding industry. Um, the Just the event rental, the, the event space rental, renting spaces for events is a $47 billion industry. And you have you have larger players like WeWork and, and some of those that are doing some of the... Um, the commercial side of that, that sort of thing. But there's a, there's a big gap there. And there's also an opportunity uh, to, I think, roll up some things and to continue to develop that ecosystem. So uh, I'm quite excited about it. Yeah, that is, that does sound really exciting. What sorts of specific cash management strategies do you have that could help businesses that are cyclical and need that cash flow to be smoothed out a little bit more? Well, one of the things I would say is that the resources that you there's so much available that is essentially free to learn around this subject. Um, What usually happens though, is when things are going great in a business, the business owner's like, he's not really thinking about typically not really thinking about, wow, how could I, how could I eke out a few more extra days in my cash conversion cycle? Or how could I, what, what tends to happen, this is human nature, right? Like when things are riding high, we get complacent. And when, when something hits the fan or goes sideways, we, then we think, oh my gosh, I got to figure something out here. Um, and, and that's what happened for me a little bit. I had, a, had some things go sideways in a cash flow standpoint in one of the businesses. And I went back to my, my playbook, which is, what do I do? I go to the library, right? Well, I don't go to the library anymore, but I, I go to Amazon, right? Or I go to my Kindle or I go to, um, I have a pretty extensive library now. So I've have books that I've never read yet that are on the shelves. So I go, I go to the, the library in my house and, and I pick stuff up in, in a couple of books that really made a difference for me in terms of cash management. Um, the, the, the one that kind of started it off for me 
is um, by Vern Harnish. He's the the founder of uh, Entrepreneur Organization. Uh, he wrote a book, and he wrote a book called The Rockefeller Habits. But um, my favorite book of his is Scaling Up, and that I literally carry a copy of Scaling Up with me in my bag, uh, in my work bag, everywhere I go. It's uh, it's essentially that. So the the subtitle is how a few companies make it and and why the rest don't. And it's it's basically all centered around the idea of taking a business that has gotten to a certain point, whether it's you know getting some stable cash flow and it's early, or it's a business that has a lot of growth potential, and scaling it up and moving through really kind of four areas he thinks about people, strategy, execution, and cash. And so the cash part, and basically what's great about this book is you can pick it up and flip to the section that kind of is where your greatest level of need is at the moment. And for me at that point in time, it was the cash area, you know, and, and basically the, the subtitle of the cash area is accelerating cash flow. And so what I, what I did was I picked up that book and I started reading and he started referencing many other books and authors and things. And so one thing leads to another. And I read a book called Simple Numbers, uh, Simple Numbers, Straight Talk, Big Profits by Greg Crabtree, um, which is another really fantastic shorter book just centered around some of the key numbers that you want to know as a business owner. And I, I basically just took some of the, the different things and strategies from there and started to apply them and then started to uh, morph the strategy or the tool I use to track the metric or whatever I'm doing um, kind of into my own into my own system. And so some of the things that I really pay attention to um, are it all starts with the sort of the owner's earnings or free cash flow of, of where you're at because that's essentially the lifeblood of your business or the lifeblood of your investment uh, your investment firm. And so from there it's how to manage that or how to grow that or how to multiply that or whatever. And, and so a few things to really focus on, um, sort of the core capital within the business, which is basically like your, I wouldn't just say it's your working capital, but it's like the excess, you know, the amount that you have in the business that is your cushion. Um, typically, it's it's a couple of months of, of total expenses that you, if you have that in hand or on hand in cash at all times, and your business is producing good returns on the cash that you leave in the business and, is, and are employing in the business, it's, it's one thing to just leave cash in a business when you don't need to. Um, that's that's not what I'd recommend. But kind of looking at those things in conjunction with each other really produces a good picture. Um, I do a lot of uh, analysis on labor efficiency uh, in terms of the every dollar of labor that you're adding into a business. Um, how does that support and grow the business? And how can you measure how every dollar of additional labor is measured? All these things matter so much more when you're when you're growing rapidly. Um, I think when you have a really stable business, you don't need, you don't typically need to add a lot of expense in advance of, of things, but if you are like pursuing rapid growth or going after, um, a, a quickly scaling opportunity, then I think some of these things become more, more valuable. Um, some other metrics I take a look at, um, return on net operating assets. So basically, um, take off, you know, sort of the short-term debt that you have. Take off some other things and, and look at what are the what is the equity plus sort of uh, the the cash that you have in the business plus debt that you have employed in the long-term debt that you have employed in the business and see what is the return that you're getting on on that um, in in return on equity in general. So what is the from the ownership standpoint, what are you leaving in the business? And then um, I mentioned asset turnover. Um, I track that as well um, because it's one thing if you have cash in the business. But if it's and if it's turning over and you're getting good returns, then that's great. 
that business that business is a good usage of cash if you have excess cash. If the assets are not turning over, but you're still getting a good rate of return on stuff that you have in the business, then you have an opportunity to pull that cash out and apply it elsewhere. And so, um, some of the those are some of the things that I look at. But uh, you know, I mentioned the cash conversion cycle uh, earlier. Really knowing what that is for a business, um, it is it is possible for a business to grow broke. You can you can have improving revenues. You can have improving paper profits on the on the P and L, um, and for that business to go backwards every month or every day in cash, which is uh, mind blowing to actually think about, but it's totally possible. And that's why I think the, you need to be aware of the business behind the business, so to speak. And uh, those are some of the ways that I. Yeah. And now that you have a, a portfolio of companies, how do you think about using earnings from a, a few companies and then you know investing them either in some of your other portfolio companies or how do you view your incoming cash flows? Basically, that, I mean, that's the golden goose, right? That, the, the whole thing is a golden goose that lays these eggs. And so how are you, how are you stu- stewarding that which has been generated? Um, and for me, it's, I don't know, I don't, I don't really have like a, a step one, step two, step three kind of situation when it comes to what are we doing to, to redeploy capital. Um, it, it's a mix of, of principles, I think. Uh, one is some of the, the actual technical uh, metrics that I mentioned earlier, we're looking at that stuff really closely to see is there is is the usage of cash in this business efficient and doing well and providing growth that it needs and, and whatever. And I think also some of it is, you know, y- you you can anticipate growth in a business and not have a metric for it. You can see an opportunity to maybe acquire another business or to try a new thing or to take some combination of anecdotal data that you're getting back from your clients that are telling you we could really use this one thing, but maybe that thing doesn't exist yet. And so you don't have an easy projection model and whatnot. And so sometimes you do have to operate a little bit off of gut when it comes to those things. But this isn't gut that is sort of like, you know, rolling the dice. This is gut that's built upon a lot of different principles and, and a lot of things learned over a period of time that you're kind of re reapplying. So, so somewhere deep in your subconscious, there's a lot of calculation that's going on in that, in that gut equation. But, um, sometimes you are making decisions about how to redeploy capital or how to, how to allocate it. Um, that, that you can't really point to the specific, um, number as to why that is the case. Um, but you can't make that call if you don't actually have cash, you have to make a decision on. So you have to have done all the work up front to grow a stable business that is producing great returns and actually have cash to redeploy, to have that good problem of cash to redeploy in order to, to be doing some of these things. So I, I think I think gut would probably not be part of the decision-making equation for me if the, if the amount of cash available were really thin. I think at that point in time, you have to get to the things that you know. You have to try and I mean, first rule of investing is don't lose money, right? So you have to protect that downside. And how do you think about funding various projects in your businesses? So if one business has some expansion that they want to, you know, put money into, how do you think about or how do you weigh that opportunity versus maybe another business that you have available? Do you use sort of a, a hurdle rate of sorts or is there some other thought process you usually go through? Yeah, I, I think hurdle rate is is certainly I, I like the using that as a phrase in this case because um, investing is all about your alternatives, 
Um, if you've never if you've never seen an opportunity above five percent <laughs> above a five percent projected return in your life, and and you've got a chance to deploy into something that is three or four percent right now, you're probably going to take that, and you you feel good about where that's going. But if you've been if you've been getting some of those fifty percent cash on cash returns um, in a business. It's it's really hard to to take a project that doesn't have a strategic advantage to it or some form of other other advantage other than it might make 10, 15% on the money and and really say that's the best use right there. So I think I think you really have to think through those things um in terms of of how you're deploying it. Yeah, it seems really hard to know what are all the other alternatives to that money being invested that you just don't know about. I'm curious when you say 50% cash on returns how do you how are you getting those numbers is it just because the the businesses you're buying are at low multiples is there some leverage you're using or is there some combination of those factors or others a lot of it has to do with the choices that you're making um and and, and i will preface this by saying um i have i have one investment currently that is in the tech space so all of these uh businesses that i'm talking about are either brick or mortar or service-based businesses um Basically, when you're talking about cash on cash returns, um, a big part of actually evaluating whether a business is profitable, not profitable, and whatnot is actually including all of the effort and the working effort that goes into that business by the owner or by the people that are starting it up and whatnot. So sometimes it takes a minute to get to those returns. You may see the first year investment, the business may lose money. The second year, it may make a little bit of money or break even. The third year, it might make 10, 15% on that money. And then it starts to tick up. And next thing you know, you're making greater than 50% cash on cash returns because you've got, you've taken the work, you don't have a ton of debt on the business. You've taken and and you've been able to put into that business uh, a lower amount of money and be able to leverage it through the other people that are working there and, and the growth maybe in conjunction with other businesses that you have, there's a strategic advantage. And so you start to generate these, these, this free cash flow without having taken some of the big sort of VC swings or without laying out a bunch of debt in order to, to grow. Or, you know, you, you kind of get to this place where over the course of time, um, you 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 figure out the what that feels like, to, and, and I hate to use some of these touchy feely terms, but there's there's some there's some truth to it because you start out knowing nothing, or you start out thinking you know everything, right? And then you get into the, the into the wild, and you realize that wow, I really don't know a lot, uh, and so I have to learn all these different specific things to think about and and do a ton of spreadsheets and things like that. And then, and then there's like a simplicity on the other side of complexity that starts to kick in where you're, you're using shorthand phrases with the people around you and you know what all, what that means. And you know, you know, you, you you've done the work ahead of time to be able to have sort of a, a, a more gut or feel level reaction now, but you're doing it based upon sound principles. And so I think you get to this place where, uh, you kind of incorporate all the various things that you've learned and situational things that have come up. You do this enough times and, and there's nothing new under the sun, um, at least uh, categorically, I should, I should say. There's always new situations that come up, but categorically, there's not that much that is new. And so you kind of learn what is a good way to deploy opportunity in a specific space. And you also, you also spend a lot of time saying no to things. Like if it's not obvious that there's a, a way to achieve some of the the high returns 
uh, better or equal to the alternatives you might have to keep money into a business, sometimes you don't do that project. And so there, there's a survivorship bias that is certainly at play, right? Because a lot of the things that, that wouldn't have made it didn't actually get out of the gate that far, or you, you shut it down quickly, or you, you, know, you pivot uh, quickly and, and sort of cut the downside or cut the losses and retain that cash for use in, in higher, uh, higher return opportunities or, or areas of deployment. And so um, over the course of time, you, you really figure out where the levers are in order to maximize the return on that cash. And a lot of people use debt to do that. Um, I don't do, I don't use debt as much as some people, and I probably use it more than others. Um, you know, I think of the, the adventures and the Brent B shores of the world. Uh, they're not using a lot of debt. You know, they're coming in with a, an equity model and, and maybe the sellers holding back some of that, uh, some of that equity. Uh, but they're not using a lot of debt. Um, I, I tend to use debt where there's hard assets. Um, and there's an opportunity to, to really utilize, uh, some of the hard assets in a way where where the risk profile of the debt being employed is not that of just I'm buying goodwill, <laughs> I'm I'm leveraging goodwill, which which is really hard to do in general. But a lot of people a lot of people try and use some of the intangibles of a business and and leverage that purchase, you know, to 90, 90 80, 90 percent of the of the purchase price. And so I tend to look for situations where I don't have to employ. Uh, a lot of debt, although I will if there's uh, if there's hard assets involved, and 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 a lot of what I do has a real estate component to it, and so you do get an opportunity to utilize debt in a in what I would say is a safe and responsible way, and um, and and then when you have a business component that's on top of that, sometimes you get a business where the real estate of that business is performing on its own, just because of the 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 business rents from the property, and then you get the business on top of that. That does fairly well. So you've you've actually taken a decent amount of the purchase price and allocated it towards the debt towards the the real estate or the hard assets and been able to leverage that safely. And then you you get the business side of it that you have a chance to grow well beyond just the rent it's paying to that to the underlying real estate. And so you you kind of have some of these multipliers and levers that you can pull. Um, but there's no there's no magic formula to get in there. I, it's there, I have some long-term plays that are, are going to be anywhere, nowhere close uh, for a long period of time uh, to some of those levels. But, um, but I, I think it's, I don't know, it's hard, it's hard to really describe, but it, it's this process of constantly honing and constantly cutting where you need to cut and cut losses. We both recently read that uh, Zach Cantor article about Amazon, where kind of a rough summary that Amazon created, you know, new companies to help solve a lot of their problems. And it sounds like you have a similar idea for your own business. Would you talk briefly about the the strategy behind what you're up to? I uh, I love doing what I do, and so as opportunities come along, if well, so I'll, I'll back up. I mentioned earlier I had sort of three pillars that I was using to uh, to kind of gauge whether something was worth doing or not doing, and if if your filter is wide enough stuff gets through the f- stuff gets through and you tend to accumulate businesses or accumulate opportunities or just things that you have to pay attention to and over the course of time um i would say over the last 15 years i've started to acquire more than 20 companies um and the the mix is not that many now but but in the course of doing that i realized i needed a little bit better uh process um a little bit better way to sort of manage the holdings because I was more involved, it wasn't a, a purely hands-off sort of situation. Because many of these companies I'd started, and so 
I kind of simplified the entity structure. I do have a holding company for a lot of the, the wholly owned things. I do have a capital company that focuses on some of the things that I'm investing in outside. Um, and then within, within those two main kind of, uh, uh, areas, you know, all of the, all of the major categories of businesses are organized. So I sort of organize things around some of the major, uh, industries like, uh, hospitality or transportation or events, real estate, uh, tech, uh, media, things like that, marketing. And so, uh, that helped a lot because now what I could do is I could attract, uh, employees or investors or partners or, or whatever that had a common set of interests around those subjects uh, and could provide value to the various businesses or involvements that were in each each area. And so that helped a lot. And I started that in, in 2011. And then what I realized over the course of time is that I probably was not going to stop building or acquiring or starting companies or, or businesses. And And so I realized what I actually needed because you just get spread ever thinner across everything if you are involved in some way, shape, or form. And so what I needed was a little bit of a a little bit of a structure that allowed me to do the things that I do uh, because I don't just invest in sort of a fund structure where we're just wholly acquiring companies and, and treat them in a portfolio sort of fashion. Um, I'm involved with the people. And so for me, I, I know every employee. I know all of the leaders. We spend FaceTime together, whether I'm involved operationally or not in that business. And, and so for me to have that level of involvement with the people I needed a structure around that that would allow sort of the business development or the the business of developing businesses to to continue to run whether I was the guy doing that or not. And so what I realized is that there's so much there's so much from the world of agriculture um, and gardening and and things like that where there's there's so many parallels that you can draw to business just like the musical component where where you have essentially what is happening is you're never like, we can never live in any other moment than, than right here, right now, right? Like the future doesn't exist yet. And maybe it won't exist the way we thought it had. The past is unchangeable and we're already not remembering it exactly as it happened, right? We are, we've already colored the events, but the only place you can, you can live in time is right now. And so the same applies to whatever you're focusing on that day or that moment in business the the only business you can work on is the one that's in the hot seat right in front of you. And so what I realized was I needed I needed the ability to focus on the business that was in front of me, how to choose which one to work on next or work on today. And I also had to figure out how to provide that situation that business in the hot seat what it needs uh from a resources standpoint or, or you, if to take the gardening standpoint a, a, uh analogy, the nutrients that it might need, right? And so and I would like to point for the record, I think that was the first time in our conversation that I used I used the uh, the phrase that a lot of us use in this in this business, right? <laughs> you ever notice that? People will say things that are esoteric and you know, they'll go through some some a whole bunch of, of legalese or something and they just say right as if you knew exactly what they were what they were describing. So I think that might have been the first time, but uh, I, I think at some point you should put together a snapshot that is just an edit of all of the times that people on your show have said, right? I think it would be 10 minutes long. All the little catchphrases. Yeah, all the catchphrases. So what I realized was I needed I need to take the DNA of how I approach business, how I approach growing things, and build sort of a, a methodology around it. So 
DNA is basically, it's this, it's this underlying set of instructions that, is, that expresses itself in, in a human or in a plant or in, in whatever. And so I have this underlying sort of way in which I do things that needed a way to express itself within this ecosystem of companies. And so what I kind of settled on was um, looking at looking at the, the business that builds businesses from sort of a four-stage process. Uh, the first thing I want to do is, is attract investable people, ideas, and opportunities. At the end of the day, that's what we're doing here, right? Like we are, uh, we're attracting or finding, but I, I would prefer to attract uh, investable opportunities. Or it might be a person that comes across the, the transom that they are the right person to either start a business or work in a business or to advance to the next stage of their career. And they need something to get them there. Uh, and I want to have the best people around. Uh, or there might be an idea that really doesn't have a specific business yet or a specific opportunity to invest in. It might be this, uh, maybe a thesis that you, you find that, you know, um, I don't know, maybe it would be great if cars could drive themselves, right? And, and, and this is before self-driving cars at some point that somebody comes up with this. Well, there's no actual business there. So exploring the idea, but it's investable. And exploring the idea and figuring out, is there a new company here, a new co that could be created uh, with the right cash and the right people? And then opportunities would be very specific uh, situations where you know, like it's a business that could be purchased or it's a business that could be started. We know how we would do it and whatnot. And so the first stage for me is, is to attract investable people and ideas and opportunities. And then the, once you've got, you've got the, uh, the person, the idea or the opportunity in the hot seat in front of you, figure out what nutrients it might need at that particular time. So the way that I look at resources or nutrients, it's, it's a handful of things. It's cash, could be cash. It could be uh, advice or coaching. Um, if it's a person or a business, it could it could just need encouragement. Sometimes, sometimes the resource that is needed in a particular point in time is somebody saying, "I believe in you, man," and here's how I can help you get to the next level, or here's how I'm going to support you getting to the next level. Um, it might be business development. It might be you know finding partner opportunities or growth opportunities, and and doing some of the legwork to make that happen. It might mean uh, people stuff, recruiting people or hiring or, or something along the lines of pulling in the right group of people. And so it could be specific services, which this is the area that kind of touched on for me uh, the Amazon model in terms of what they've done with specifically with Amazon Web Services. Um, you know, that the story there is they, they basically got to this point where how large Amazon could grow was constricted by the the speed with which they could provision new servers and with they could sp- provision new um, the the tech basically right and so um, there were long wait times that they had in kind of growing in that way and so they figured out and made it a huge priority within the company that they could develop something that would allow them to instantaneously effectively instantaneously provision server space and grow in that fashion and do it kind of in in a incremental fashion, however they needed to do it. And so, but what's interesting about that is when you develop a business like that internally, that serves your own company, it's, it's a separate thing, right? It needs its own team to, to build that out. And, and then it's effectively providing service to its same company, to Amazon. What happens a lot of times in those situations is if you're not having to compete on the open market, if you don't have to, 
Um, if you don't have to be innovative because the next guy is going to steal your business and you've got a captive customer, it's very easy to get complacent. And so um, they, they realized, I don't know exactly who did this, but I'll give the credit to Jeff Bezos, um, that if we turn this thing, number one, people would pay for this, but number two, if we turn this thing to be market-facing, to be customer, to be external to the company facing. One, we expand the surface area that the whole company uh, reaches because this is a whole other area of of service that we are not currently in. It's not it's not necessarily a retail business, right? And so, but then the other thing is, people the business will have to compete on the open market, which is going to only improve its ability to do what it does, and it's going to improve us. Amazon being one of the customers, it's going to improve what we get from from AWS. And so uh, it's it's brilliant. Uh, it's very smart and it has grown uh, amazingly. But for me, one of the things that I realized was as I've grown businesses, not every business is of a size to have its own uh, internal IT department or its own internal full-fledged marketing, um, or I call it the growth department. But growth area or a full-fledged finance team. You don't have a C-level exec over every one of those businesses, especially if you're in some of these smaller biz spaces where you know it might make a million or two million a year or something like that, or smaller. Um, and so, but, you, but having that skill set and that advice and the service of that is still valuable. And so I thought, well, rather than at the parent company, so to speak, Sunset Coast Brands, rather than just hire a CFO, a CMO, you know, a CTO, uh, whatever else we're doing, experience and all those sorts of things. And having this sort of myopic, they all serve the one, the one customer, so to speak, or at least the one set of businesses. Why not develop service-based businesses that were those sort of, um, uh, I don't know, incrementally available, right? You've, you've seen like CFOs for hire, whether you can hire an inc incremental CFO or s chief marketing officer or whatever. But if you actually had effectively the skill set of digital advertising or of media or of finance or of uh, property management or of HR recruiting people stuff, and you, you had that market facing, you, you had the opportunity not only to grow those individually as businesses, but the value that they're providing to the, the customer that's internal is going to keep growing because of that natural competition, and so uh, that's what I've that's what I've started to do with the sort of the services side um, of of what we do. So, but one that's one of those nutrients that we provide to the the seedlings, so to speak, is the is the the shared services. Yeah, and then of those shared services, which of those departments are you going to start beginning building a company around? Um, well, I've already started on a couple of them that. The main area that I'm focused on right now is is in the the growth or the or the digital marketing space. Um, I th I think that as a function, the growth function of a business in terms of um, I I love to break down a business in terms of a little bit of a formula in terms of how it grows. You know, what are the key components to this business getting where it needs to go? And so, um, combining combining that with the 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 expertise to achieve. Uh, the what to to go through the various ways that a business can grow in terms of its its marketing function, so to speak. Um, I feel that's a critical that's a critical area in, in an area that I most want to develop first. And so that's we're in process with that right now, uh, launching a business called the Growth Lab. If you could go to college and be a professor of any class you can think of, what class would you want to teach? I was thinking about this question a little bit before 
we uh, we hopped on the horn here. And if I think if it wasn't a class on how to build a collection of beautiful, healthy businesses in an ecosystem, um, I think it would be it would be a class about paying attention to defining and becoming aware of the foundations of your life. So we we talk a lot about setting goals. We talk a lot about business growth. Um, but every single one of the people that you have on your show, the people that are listening now, everyone that's that's out there has, they're an individual human being um, that really there's some foundations to who they are, what they think about, and what's important to them that a lot of people don't pay attention to, I think, until you get some of these moments in life where you're shaken awake uh, to to pay attention to them. And so I think I would teach a class on the foundations of your life. Uh, for me, in trying to do goal setting, and I do this every year, I always felt a disconnection from the bigger picture. Like, the, the you know, I'd come up with these habits and goals that I wanted to pursue, right? But but it would there would be this disconnection from who I am as a person sometimes because it happened to relate to what was right in front of me that I needed to take care of or needed to adjust or whatever. And I didn't really, but I didn't have a framework for how to focus on the foundational stuff. And so I actually spent some time uh, a year ago uh, figuring out a framework to look at. I call it the foundational map of my life. It looks like a bullseye in a way. And I, and I started from the the middle, which is this identity piece. Like, who am I as a person? What am I about? And then sort of the next ring outward um, is, is how is it that I want to be in the world? Right? What are the things that I value how do I want to approach um, how I interact with people, all those sorts of things? How, how do I want to be in the world, regardless of what happens to be specifically in front of me right now? Um, the, the other thing that was really important that I realized was uh, everything in life is hard. <laughs> no matter what you're going to pursue, it's going to be hard. Uh, something will happen, you know, things go sideways, whatever. It, it, it'll just be hard. It's all hard. But some things are worth it. And if things are hard, if there's going to be a little bit of a struggle uh, to kind of achieve that which you want to achieve, then what are the things that you're willing to struggle well for? What are those things that you are willing to endure hardship and willing to endure what's necessary to grow yourself as a person, to scale yourself up as a person before you scale a business? And so that, that was another key for me to the foundation. And then from there, if you know who you are, you know how you want to be in the world, you know the big things that you're willing to struggle well for, now starting to set some of these goals and decide what are the habits that I need to pursue to achieve the goals. You know, I, I need to know who I am as a person. I need to be a person that does certain things to then have what I want to have. And so getting that be, do, have for me right was was so important. And then it just plays out from there. You can you can get more and more fine and closer to the present moment. You you how does daily life how does daily life go? What what how would today be great if I've got this foundation behind me and in, in the things that I want to do and who I want to be and and the things I'll struggle for. And then then stuff happens, the path kind of unfolds, but you're then led to this sort of this present moment where now in the moment when I'm sitting here with you, Alex, how is it that I want to be in this moment? And if I haven't thought through all those other things, I could be 20 different ways with you right now. But I feel very comfortable and able to just be who I am in that moment. And I think that's something that um, I missed out on a lot in my younger years. And I think a lot of people do too. So I think I would teach a class on the foundations. What would you say is the most fortunate event that had happened to you that was completely random. 
Uh, that would have to be that would have to be the U-turn that I made. Uh, March Thursday, March seventh, two thousand and two. That was that was when that happened. It was probably somewhere around six thirty p.m. in the evening Central Standard Time. And uh, but from that decision to show up at that dinner with one other guy that was willing to show up. It, it led to sm- starting a small club of entrepreneurs and investors, which grew to more than 500 members, out of which I was able to start sharing knowledge and, and coach and, and help and, and provide some income for myself, which led to one of my clients asking me to come into a large real estate investment and trading some effort and cash for that and into and, and moving to a, a community where I saw opportunity, where I was able to start more than 15 other companies. And all of that happened from one single U-turn when for some reason, uh, for some reason, I said yes to the opportunity when I had shot myself in the foot. And I know in my life that U-turn, that single U-turn was the difference between a life that was headed probably nowhere, or at least not anywhere good, uh, and me sitting here right now talking to you. What would you say is the, the best business you've ever seen? Not necessarily through your own you know, active investing, but even just something you've seen through reading or an article somewhere. Well, I, I definitely think the best business is, is always ahead because uh, there's always a chance to improve. These are living, breathing things. But I think there's there's different ways to answer your question. So in many ways, it's a little bit of a Rorschach test that you have going on here. And I think it's interesting how people choose to answer that question. But I think there's different ways to answer it. Um, to me, it's I like to think of it in the framework of it's it's the best business for something. So it could be the best business for uh, what, what, what is the best business that I'm most excited about? Uh, and right now that's the overall sort of ecosystem of things kind of building this, this gardener, this master gardener business, so to speak. Um, oh, you know, that, that assists with everything else. Um, I, you could, could be the best business for just pure cash flow. Um, in which case sometimes in that, in that instance, you're looking at some of these sticky niche SaaS products for specific industries with massive free cash flow as a percentage of revenue that, that really, if you don't care about what the business is and you're not concerned about legacy and you're not thinking about, maybe it's not the most exciting thing, but that might be the best business for that particular uh, aspect of something that would be important for cash flow. Um, or it might be the best business for maximizing your impact on the world. Um, I'm thinking of like, that might be like a a gig economy platform that allows people in remote impoverished parts of the world to earn income, like regardless of the circumstances or opportunities directly around them. And you might change, you might change the world for billions of people. Um, and that would certainly be, uh, in many ways, one of the best businesses in the world. So I don't know if there's a, a specific answer I could give you of one individual business. Um, I think if, we mentioned Brent Bishore earlier. Um, I've heard him on some other podcasts mention um, that maybe the the simplest business model is uh, a pet crematorium, because uh, essentially all you need is a storefront and an oven. Yeah, that one always sticks out in my mind. Uh, it's a it's one of those businesses that you know obviously exists and someone has to do it, but you never think of as its own business with you know an owner and revenue and all those other sorts of things. Yeah, are there other businesses like that? that stick out in your mind when you think of kind of a unique business that maybe no one's heard about, but is more profitable than most people would think? Um, I, you know, I don't know. I, there's, I think quite often businesses that are like right in front of you that we don't even think about, like things that just happen that, that kind of take care of like black topping businesses. Like it's, we're probably not going to move past 
past blacktopping and and having parking lots and stuff like that. Although maybe there'll be fewer of them as as the self driving car uh, piece perpetuates, but. Um, some of those businesses can be really interesting and, you know, just boring things that are in front of you that, that, uh, potentially could be highly profitable. But to me, like the most interesting businesses for me, if I was to say, okay, how, if I didn't, if I just wanted to, uh, sort of achieve the, maybe the more tactical sorts of goals that I have, it would be things along the lines of, of some of those niche SaaS businesses that we were, we were talking about earlier. That would be something that would be very interesting to me. Um, because essentially at the end of the day, you are, we are trying to, to get to a place where, uh, the, the dollars that we're investing come back to us plus additional dollars that are ready to work hard for the next phase. Um, but if I wasn't only thinking about the tactical, which I don't only think about that, um, and I'm thinking about the people and I'm thinking about the legacy and I'm thinking about how it is I want to be in the world, then I think there's some other, some other avenues that I would pursue that maybe the metrics don't always look uh, don't always look as, as, uh, great, but, um, are certainly well above level of acceptability. And, uh, especially in this, this world of micro PE that we like to play in. I mean, you can achieve returns on businesses that maybe aren't as great as the best business out there, but are well in excess of what people are getting in the, uh, in the public markets. Thank you very much, David, for sharing your time with me today. I really appreciate it. I've had a great time chatting with you. You're welcome. It's been fun for me too. I always enjoy our conversations. Me as well. I'm looking forward to the next one. Same here. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation today. We are a new podcast and leaving us reviews helps us tremendously. Please leave one if you feel so inclined. For show notes and more information, please visit our website at thinklikeowners.com.